Welcome to the iMatter Podcast, future-proof your business, career, teams, and organization. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira. Welcome to the iMatter Podcast. Let's talk about being brainy, specifically how to use our brains better at work. Now, obviously, we all use our brains in different ways, but one of the things that leaders are especially good at is pattern matching. We're really good at seeing, recognizing, and acting on patterns in the world, and that gives us valuable insights, judgment, and wisdom, sometimes things that other people don't see. In fact, a lot of what we call intuition comes from pattern matching, even if it's subconscious. For example, you might get a routine email from one of your team members about a task that she's working on, and it looks like a fairly simple and innocuous email, just reporting on an interaction with with somebody else in your team. But you know that she's upset just from reading it. And there's nothing obvious in the email, but subconsciously you spot something there that's, that's different from her normal emails. In other words, something that doesn't match her usual pattern. Or you might be making a presentation to a group and you stop for questions and you look around the room and even before somebody raises their hand, you know they're going to ask a question. And you call on them and they might be amazed because perhaps they didn't even decide themselves to ask a question when you call them. But you spotted something in their posture or a micro-expression on their face or a tiny change that crossed your subconscious mind and registered as a pattern. And pattern matching is great because it fast-tracks our decision-making. So if we make a product in three sizes and the first two are small and medium, we know that the third one should be large, not something like ginormous. If we drive a different car for the first time, we get the hang of it pretty quickly because most of the features are exactly the same. If we eat at a new restaurant, we broadly recognize most of the items in the menu, even if we've never seen exactly that same menu before. When we recruit somebody new into the team, we've got a pretty good idea of what they need to know in their induction program. But pattern matching can also get us into trouble, especially in a world that's changing fast because things are changing around us and the old patterns don't always work. Some of the patterns that used to serve us can sometimes hold us back and perhaps even cause us harm. For example, when I mentor leaders and presenters who are using webinars for the first time and learning how to present over a webinar, I often find that the more experience you have as a presenter, the more difficult it is to run your first webinar. That sounds odd, right? But it's because the webinar environment is so different. And some of the patterns that you've learned as a presenter in a workshop or in a meeting room don't work. For example, you don't have those subconscious cues that somebody's about to ask you a question. You don't get friendly smiles and nods from the audience when you make a point. You can't tell whether your attempts at humor are working or not because you can't hear people laughing or not. You don't know whether people are paying attention or not because you can't judge that from their eyes or their posture. Now, ironically, less experienced presenters often do better because they've never learned these patterns. So they just get on with it and do just fine. But experienced presenters sometimes feel unnerved by it. Here's another example of pattern matching. This time a bit of a fun puzzle. So here's a puzzle. Maria's father has five daughters. Chacha, Cheche, Chichi, Chocho, and what is the name of the fifth daughter? Well, the answer is... Maria. If you said choo-choo, as many people do, that's because you fell into the pattern matching trap, right? So pattern matching is a double-edged sword. It can be powerful and it can be dangerous. So how can you take advantage of its benefits, but also at the same time reduce its risks? Well, glad you asked, because today I'm talking with Dr. Jenny Brockis, who explains how to use our brains more effectively in a time of rapid change. So we're going to get to that conversation soon, but before we do, just for fun, here are three more puzzles to test your pattern matching skills, and I'll give you the answers after the conversation with Jenny. Okay, puzzle number one. A cricket bat and ball together cost $11, and the bat costs $10 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Okay, puzzle two. 
If five men can paint five walls in five minutes, how long does it take ten men to paint ten walls? And puzzle three, a fish weighs 500 grams plus half its weight. How much does it weigh? All right, let's hear from Jen. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jenny Brockis. Now, Jenny is obsessed about understanding more about why we think and behave the way that we do. And she believes that success comes from people, from business owners, organizations, people in general, who choose to invest in their brain. And Jenny calls this their, their most precious asset. And, and I love it. And it's not only investing in your own brain, but it's also investing in the brains of the people who work for you, uh, in your organization, in your wider network. And Jenny's an expert in brain health brain health and well-being. She's got lots of qualifications. She's a doctor, so she's Dr. Jenny Brock is a medical practitioner. She's also got a postgraduate certification in the neuroscience of leadership, and I'm really interested in that. And I also saw Jenny recently on your, I think I think it on, I saw it on your Skype profile, that your tagline is creating mental agility for the minds of the future. And I love that idea. So welcome, Jenny. Thanks very much, Gihan. Glad to be here. But tell me a little bit about your background and how you got really interested in this area of brain health and well-being. Well, I am a medical practitioner, as you mentioned, and I spent many years working as a general practitioner in the northern suburbs of Perth running my business. And I had a, a substantial part of my clientele who were older, many of whom had issues as they were aging with the onset of dementia. And that sort of piqued my interest into brain health, particularly as the, um, the story was that, you know, more of us were living longer and consequently more of us were also going to be suffering with problems with our cognition. And that got me sort of questioning, well, what are we doing about that? Um, I could see the outcome and I didn't like the outcomes. And the more I researched, the more I realised that actually we have... Uh, enormous responsibility for our own thinking processes and our own brain health. And we could do much to actually maintain how well we use our brain and how well we think. And it's not just about preventing dementia. It's really about using our brain so that in an optimal way, so we get more out of everything we do. I just reached a point in my medical career that I realized I had to be doing things differently. I was no longer able to continue in my pre-existing role because I really felt compelled to take the message outside the consulting room and to speak with people in the workplace and and to educators in the education system Mm -hmm. about how we can build what I call our level of brain fitness and brain awareness to help us achieve these changes. And it's interesting that this conversation that we're having now kind of grew out of a conversation that you and I were having over coffee a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the fact that workplaces are changing so fast, organizations are facing so much change, both from inside and outside. And you were saying that people really need to know how to adapt to change differently now. What do you see as what's different about change now? What what are the real significant changes that are happening with change that mean that, you know, the traditional ways of handling change just don't work anymore? I think it's it's primarily the pace of change we're, we're having to deal with. It was Peter Darmondis who uh, he he talked about the fact that you know, as as we evolved as human beings, we dealt with change because that's how we evolved and adapted to changes in our environment. And at that time, change was fairly linear and fairly local. 
And now we live in a world where change is occurring at an exponential rate and it's global. And because of that, it's actually impacting our ability to deal with all this change. And it's causing us to experience a high level of stress. And if we're more stressed, we're less capable of managing change or managing it effectively. And I think the the way forward is to understand more about how our brain works mm-hmm. so that we can then actually procure the desired change um, at, on an individual level and on an organizational level. So can you give me an example, Jenny, of something that maybe the way we used to deal with change a generation ago that may have been okay then, but just doesn't work anymore? With with change, it used to be that, you know, in the workplace, um, a manager or a leader would say, we've got a new policy or procedure about the way we conduct a particular um, procedure. And people will be notified of that change. Um, it might have been put up on a notice board or discussed in the meeting. And that was pretty much how it was dealt with. I think the difference today is because people are living at a time when they're really, really busy the the thought of having to deal with change is adding to that level of stress. And so they automatically become more resistant to it. And so although the, you might be able to see that the change is, is useful and desirable, uh, it's just another added burden to your, your daily tasks. And so we, we, we tend to put up our hands and, and resist it or feel more overwhelmed by the prospect of having to deal with that change. So I think we just react differently to how we we did um, when when change was presented to us in in smaller pieces or smaller bites. Okay, so you're saying that now we're reacting not only to the fact that we've got to do something differently, which we still had to do, but Mm -hmm. now we're even reacting to the fact that that has changed. So it's not only the new procedure, but the fact that the procedure changes every five minutes. That's right. When we, we suffer more from what's described as change fatigue, because it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to to implement a change. And if you're feeling that you're you're time poor and energy deficient, it just adds to that that stress of, well, gosh, how can I get through this this day with this amount of change? And I've got this pile of change waiting to be introduced as well. Yeah, it almost seems like uh, anything that you do is you're never going to get ahead, are you? Because you can implement a change and then as soon as you're comfortable with it, something else happens and you have to change all over again. That's right. And and change is a continuum. And I think most people understand that. It's just that if we feel it's it's uh, that we're not in charge of it um, or we can't control it to a certain degree, that's when it, it starts to cause problems for us in terms of our own sort of well-being and our ability to to manage the change effectively. And is that where you come in, Jenny? Is that where the whole brain fitness idea comes in? Because you, like, you seem to have touched on the word control, which seems to be a key factor. At least, you know, from my viewpoint, it seems like change is going to happen. It is inevitable, and it's going to happen around us whether we like it or not. But we've got some choices about whether we can control it, and that comes down to our brain. That's right. And it's, it's understanding sort of how your brain re- reacts to change. And basically, we've, we've evolved to resist change because the brain perceives any change as a, as a massive threat. And if we are feeling threatened, we, we see ourselves in a position of danger. And if we, if we think we're in an unsafe place, 
we we respond either by deciding we're going to run away from it because uh, it might be something that's going to try and eat us or we're going to stand and put up a fight or sometimes we just get frozen to the spot. We, we, we can't move. We don't know what to do with it. So it triggers a very sort of deep ingrained response within the brain. Okay. And so just from a broad overview, are you suggesting that we need to be able to change our response to it or do we need to be able to manage our response more effectively? It's it's more a management because it's we're not going to be able to change that aspect of our brain because it's a survival mechanism. Mm. Uh, we need to be able to respond to danger when it presents itself in an appropriate way. But it's really about um, what what some people call paper tigers rather than real tigers. Mm. If it's if it's a paper tiger, something that we we perceive as being a threat, but it's not really. How we choose to manage it makes all the difference. It's a bit like you can get up in the morning and you realise that you've slept through the alarm and you rush out of the door, you miss your breakfast, you, you get stuck in a traffic jam, you're late for your first meeting. Um, all those sort of things add to your level of stress and how you the, the difference of, of how your day will go won't be those things that happen to you. It's how you choose to respond to them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we can, and that's how I like to think about it when we're dealing with change. The change is going to be there, how it manifests itself and how what the outcome is determined will be really um, how we actually respond to what we see and, and what we want to do with it. And, and that's there where the brain science comes in. We, we build that brain awareness, we perceive what's happening in our environment, and we make the response that is most appropriate to us at that particular time. Right. And I know you've done some work with another colleague of ours, Mike House, who talks yes. about survival and change. And I know you've done quite a lot of work together on on looking at change, particularly change in organisations and the way that people manage change. Yes. Uh, what have you found? What are the ways that people handle change? Well, there are, there are two basic ways we, we, we manage change. We can either react, mm-hmm. and within the reactive group, you've got the resistors and the survivors. Mm-hmm. And then in the responsive group, the people that manage change more effectively, you've got what I, I call the explorers and the adapters. So if we look at the reactors, these are the people who are faced with a, with a, a, a change Um the, the lowest group would be the resistors, the people who just say, no, not going anywhere near there. I don't like that. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. And what you're suggesting is, is going to cause me pain. It's going to ha- You're asking me to do something differently. And I'm actually very comfortable in my spot right here. So please leave me alone. And in an organization, these people are, are, are really difficult sometimes to deal with because they are completely closed to the suggestion that things could be done differently, perhaps in a more appropriate way or in a way that would actually produce a better outcome. Mm-hmm. So, so they're the, the first group. And the second group uh, are the survivors. Now, in this group, they're, they're, they're surviving by sort of treading water just to keep their heads up. Mm-hmm. Um, when called upon, they can actually manage to look at something new or different that's being presented to them, but they feel quite threatened by it and they would really much rather be left alone the rest of the time. But So 
for them, it's a big effort. They feel quite threatened in that position. They seem to come to the party and, and join in. But as soon as they can, they withdraw back to their corner and hope that nobody's going to bother them again for a little while. So, right. So the reactions are, are quite they're also a bit awkward. You can sometimes get them on side, but it's a lot of hard work and effort to sort of, you know, drag them along um, into into the conversation around the, the change that's being proposed. Okay, so what you're saying is with both those groups, I mean, the best that you can get is reluctance. That's right. And, they, and these people quite often have a more what is called a closed mindset. Um, these are people that see intelligence as being fairly fixed, um, so you're either clever or you're not. It, it makes growth and opportunity difficult to introduce into an organisation if if you're dealing with people who have more of a, of a closed mind because they just can't see any possibility, which is very different from the responders, the explorers and the adapters who have what is called the open or growth mindset who see that Things can be done differently. There are alternatives. And while they may not all be perfect, they're worth, well, at least the explorers are willing to give them a try. They're willing to give them a go just to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And that frees people up to think, well, actually, this is going really well and, and I like this and or let's progress a bit further just to see how far this will take us. And that really starts to uh, help people start to collaborate and work better together, particularly in the, the team situation. Um, so people start to get that sense that they're achieving more, they're feeling rewarded by that, and that helps to motivate them to want to continue with the with the um, change that's been suggested. And, and the final group, which is the adapters, which are really the – they tend to be the leaders of the organisation. They're the ones that have fully embraced the concept that the change is a continuum – and that while you're introducing one change, the environment, again, is, is changing behind us and they're ready, willing and able to motivate the others to say, come on, guys, look, there's something else out there which is really worth trying here and I'd really love us to, to have a go. So these are the people that lead people forward and, and motivate others to, to really lift their game. Okay, and can I ask you, when you say leaders of the organisation, you're not necessarily meaning the people who are the most senior management, but they could be leaders at any level, is that right? Absolutely, at any level. Yeah, yeah we, te we tend to think of leaders as the CEOs or the, the, you know, the people sitting in the C-suite, the executive, executives. But there are many leaders within organisations, and they can be found at many different levels. And I think that one of the keys to successful change is to recognise them within an organisation so that... They, because they're the ones that champion change. They are the ones, so if, if they're in more middle management or different levels, they are the ones that are going to get everybody else on board and say, come on, chaps, if that's the language they're using, <laughs> let's go for this and give it a try. And it seems to me that, that sometimes there, there might even be people who are a little bit annoying, a little bit of a nuisance, a little bit of, you see them as a little bit of troublemakers because they're always angling for change. And But there, there might be somebody like, I'm, I'm guessing, somebody like a, a smart Gen Y who's yeah. always looking to do things differently and who rails against the uh, working towards the standards and the systems and the processes. But they may be the the, the right sort of person to lead your organization forward. That's right. And I think it's about allowing people a voice. Mm. It's, it's about allowing people at 
different levels within an organization to be heard. And I think the the businesses that we see succeeding now and in the future will be those that recognize that having diversity of thought um, is what helps to add to the momentum of change, not just for change's sake, but to make sure we're not just getting stuck in, in the status quo again and uh, and allowing things to be ex- explored in a different way. Uh, coming coming back to something else, you said, Jenny, coming back to your, your four levels and I guess the breaking that into two with the reactors and the responders, you mentioned mindsets and uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you're referring back to Carol Dweck's work on mindsets. It's been a while since I read that, but I seem to recall that she was saying that particularly with kids, you can change somebody from a closed mindset to growth mindset. Is that true throughout life that, or, or when you say these people fall into these four categories, that's what they've got. And that's what you kind of stuck with if you're a leader or a manager in an organization. It is something that can be changed, but you have to choose to change it. Um, mindset is something that we evolve over a period of time, and obviously we're influenced strongly in our in our younger lives when we're kids by the people that we spend most time with, which is usually our parents. So parental influence will greatly shape our, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our values even, uh, which we then carry on through life. With with Carol Dweck's work, which has really revolutionised how we how we have we think about our attitude, um, she recognises that while mindset is is very much formed in our formative years, it is something that we can choose to change if we recognise that actually we're a bit stuck in the in the fixed mindset because it's and and it's holding people back. Um, I've, I've witnessed this where I've seen really clever people actually not succeed terribly well because they've been told all the way through that they're terribly clever. Mm. And if, you're, if you've been told you're terribly clever, you have to be seen to be terribly clever. Mm. And if you're then given a challenge, which is going to push you, push you out of your comfort zone and, give you, and, and you're placed in a position where you possibly might fail – you don't want to other, let others see that, so you choose not to take up the challenge. And this is this is what I've seen in some organisations where um, the the executives have said, "Look, we've, we've earmarked this person as a potential leader of the company, and yet they're just not stepping up. And we can't understand why. They've, we we can see their potential, but they're not buying into it. And it's often because the person is really intelligent, and yet." Because they've got more of a fixed mindset, they're, they're holding back because they don't want to be seen or perceived as a failure by getting something wrong. Whereas somebody else who, who may not have the smarts as much but is willing to, to give something a try, fail if necessary because they feel they can learn from that failure, is much more adaptable and much more likely to actually be uh, more successful in their, in their chosen career path. And that certainly does seem to be manifesting itself from the people I've worked with in, in different organisations. Okay, so if we follow on from that example, um, I remember reading, I think Dweck said this as one of her examples, was when, mm. you're, when you're working with kids, 
if yes. somebody if somebody does something really well, you say mm-hmm. to her instead of saying to her, "Oh, you did that so well because you're so smart," you say, mm-hmm. "Oh, you did that so well because you worked really hard at it." Yes, and that's the difference between saying fixed and growth. Yes. What's equivalent to that for the adult workplace? Is it as simple as the words that you use, or what else do you need to do? It is, Kehan. It really is. It's the language we use. Um, if if we reward somebody simply by being smart, then we're, we're not actually helping them to grow and develop. If we if we reward them for the, the effort um, and time they've spent doing a piece of work, that is far more rewarding to them and will motivate them to want to do more. If we really want to motivate people, if we if we make them feel valued and 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 respected by acknowledging all the effort that they've put in, that is what will drive them and and drive them to to try something different or or step up and and look for um, you know, a further way to add more to the company itself. It's it's a great way of motivating people to. Um, trust in, in, in the actual organisation that they work for. Okay, great. So give, give me some more practical ideas, Jenny. So that's one really good one about the language that you use. What other things can you do if you're a leader or a manager? And, and I'm also thinking you're not necessarily the CEO or senior manager or business owner, so you may not have control over the whole organisation, sure. but you're still a leader or manager of a team. How do you make them more that explorer or adapter? How do you encourage them to be more like that? I think it's making sure that somebody feels safe within the, um, in, the, in that team um, environment to discuss things that worry them. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that can hold us back is, is if we're concerned that if we do this, it's, it's going to be wrong or we're going to be judged or criticised. If, if we feel that we're in a safe place where we can discuss those things that concern us and, and, and say somebody wants to introduce a new procedure, but your concern is that that procedure actually might cause an issue with a piece of equipment which might then fail, which could cause a problem or an accident. It's really important that that person has has the sense that they can speak up and be listened to, that people don't have to agree with you, but if, if you get that sense that you're being listened to, it feels you've got that voice and it feels that you're contributing. And if you feel that you're in that state, then it makes it easier for a manager to, I think, engage in a team that actually works better together. I think it's about providing people the autonomy that they can get on and manage their own work and come to a manager and discuss any issues that they're concerned about in, in a place of safety without feeling like, oh, no, this means I'm going to get a blot against my performance review by mm. you know, stand, putting my hand up and, and talking about something that's of concern. That I, I can see that there are a couple of ways that you could do that, but you do it by passing responsibility down and allowing people to make those sort of decisions, the people who can have the concerns. Um, I guess that's one option. Another option would be, you know, let's say you have a weekly team meeting where you say, look, here's, some, here's something new that's happened in an organization. Does anyone have any concerns about it? Uh, option three is saying, I've got an open door policy. Please come and talk to me anytime you've got concerns. What is it? Is it a mix of them? Is it one's better than the other? How do people manage that sort of environment? I think it's a, it's a mixture of everything. It's, it's, it's finding the balance of what works w- within a team in particular. But I think you know, the manager who's the open door, who is 
perceived as being somebody that actually will stop and listen to another person is the per- is the manager that will actually help to lead change more effectively when it's being expected of other people. Um, it's about managing people's expectations because we all have different expectations of ourselves or different people. It, and it's about making sure that we can be accountable to ourselves and to others as well. Okay, and coming back to something that we discussed earlier, Jenny, uh, you talked about the feeling that people have a lack of control, and that's a key factor in yes. making them resistant to change or finding it harder to adapt. What can you do? Well, how how can you give people more control? Or, or is that actually something that you should be trying to do? I think it depends partly on the culture of the organisation they're working in, because um, certainly some some workplaces have a culture where um, they're just not expected to be able to have a degree of autonomy. And in some instances where you've got to have consistency of procedure, it's not always appropriate. But if you're looking for innovation and new ideas, having that, that, that safety feature again, the, the autonomy to reach out and explore is, is really, really important. And we, and we know that matters to our health and well-being as well. If we, if we feel that that power of choice is being taken away from us and we're just being dictated to, we tend to, well, I don't know about you, Gihan, but I tend to, I stick my heels in and I become much more resistive and I sort of semi-listen to what you're saying, but in fact, I might not be. Okay. So somebody who's interested in doing some of these things, Jenny, like either tapping into the explorers and the adapters or maybe moving some of the uh, what are they, the resistors and the, what's the other one? The survivors. The resistors and survivors, maybe changing their mindset a little bit or just overall improving the performance and the productivity and the stress levels of the team. What, what do you think are some initial steps that they can take? What, what have you found in your experience works for them? I think it's building awareness uh, of how the brain likes to operate because if we understand why we think and behave the way we do, it makes it much easier to to manage our thinking processes. So it's the first step is really building awareness of, of understanding a bit more about how the brain ticks. And the second thing is then to understand, well, if we're talking about initiating change, then how does the brain perceive that? Why does the brain resist change so much? And what are the key things that we can start to implement that will make change initiative more successful? Because we know that traditionally, um, I think it was John Cotter who said 30 years ago that 70% of all change initiative fails, um, which is appalling. And, and, the, and the sad thing is we haven't got much better. Um, but I think if we incorporate the brain science that's now known, we can understand the neuroscience of change, mm-hmm. which means that we can have the opportunity to understand, well, let's understand the threat and look for ways to minimise the threat response. Because if you can minimise that threat response, then you've got the opportunity to say, hey, yes, this is the way to develop your explorers and adapters, people who can embrace change and respond to initiatives to implement new ideas. Okay, great. And and what do you do, Jenny? How can you help people in in this path? I'm sure that you work with lots of business leaders, organizations, people at different levels of organizations. Who do you you most like to work with and what can you do with them? 
I, I love working with with um, those those people who who recognise that they want more change within an or need to introduce change into their organisation because they can see the need for business growth and opportunity or people who've already had a lot of change forced on them where it's produced a few problems. And I love going into that sort of environment to, to help them sort of unpack what the issues are. So it's, it's about building that brain awareness, building that understanding, and then putting into place these the strategies that can help them to move forward most effectively. And do you work with people one-on-one? I know you do conference speaking because I've been in yes. one of the audiences. Um, so you do speaking. I guess you do one-on-one work. What else do you, what else do, you do? I also do some uh, workshops, which can be sort of mini workshops or half-day workshops, depending on what's required. And sometimes, um, because change takes time, uh, it can be a series of workshops done over a period of time, maybe over a six to 12-month period to really introduce the different concepts and to help the teams implement the changes that they're trying to to establish. Great. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Jenny? They can do that either through my website, which is simply www.drjennybrockis.com or my email, which is jenny at drjennybrockis.com. Okay. And I think you should spell that. (laughs) It's DR for doctor, then Jenny with a Y. B-R-O-C-K-I-S. Dot com. It's dot com, oh, isn't oh, it? Yes. Com. Yeah, great. And Jenny, I know one of the other things that you've done, we, I mentioned earlier that you've done some work with Mike House, and I know one of the things you've produced together is a fantastic white paper that goes into some of the things we've talked about and more in a lot more detail. So tell me a little bit more about that. So, yes, I've written a white paper with uh, Mike House. It's called Change the Missing Link. And it can be downloaded from my website. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for sharing your insights and your ideas. Any, any last thoughts? Just that we, we have this amazing plastic brain and it's the plasticity which enables us to change our thinking and our thought patterns because it's what we choose to focus on that leads to the change that we, we desire. Great. Dr. Jenny Brockis, thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jenny and can use her ideas to use your brain more effectively, especially in your role as a leader. And in case you missed it, you can find out more about Jenny and download her resources at drjennybrockis.com. That's D-R-J-E-N-N-Y-B-R-O-C-K-I-S dot com. Oh, and before we go, let's revisit those three puzzles I gave you earlier. Okay, so the first one again, a cricket bat and ball together cost $11 and the bat costs $10 more than the ball. So how much does a ball cost? Now the obvious answer is a dollar. And that's what you might say if you used your pattern matching brain. I said $11 and $10, so it's easy to jump to the conclusion that the ball is a dollar, because that's the difference between 11 and 10. But that's wrong. If you do the maths, the ball is actually 50 cents, and the bat is $10.50. All right, puzzle two. If five men can paint five walls in five minutes, how long does it take for 10 men to paint 10 walls? Now again, if you just used a pattern matching shortcut, you might say 10 minutes. That's the obvious pattern, right? 5, 5, 5 should match 10, 10, 10. But that's not right. The correct answer is 5 minutes. If 5 men can paint 5 walls in 5 minutes, it takes 5 minutes for a man to paint a wall. So if there are 10 men and 10 walls, it still takes 5 minutes. If there are 1,000 men and 1,000 walls, it still takes 5 minutes. Okay, puzzle 3. 
A fish weighs 500 grams plus half its weight. How much does it weigh? Again, if you use a pattern matching shortcut, you might take the 500 grams, add half of that, which is 250, to come up with the answer of 750 grams. But again, that's not right. The correct answer is one kilogram. This time, I'll let you figure out why. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. If you did get some value from it, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store. That helps to promote it to other people as well. If you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, check out my speaking topics at gihanperera.com. You can also find out about my mentoring programs if you're interested in one-on-one work for yourself or your teams. I also run a membership site for leaders to help with creating an online footprint, marketing your business, getting things done in a chaotic world, and delivering more magnetic messages. You can find out more at egurus.info. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, again, go to gihanperera.com where you can find my blog, newsletter, podcast, videos, and webinar series. All of these are free, and all are designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself. That's at gihanperera.com. G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A.com. Thanks, and bye for now. You've been listening to the iMatter Podcast. To subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit iMatterPodcast.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.